Behold, a gateway to your own past, if you wish. Cisterna sits astride Highway 7. The beachhead can't be expanded until this town is taken. We'll take it with an infiltrating attack, fast and shocking. Intelligence reports the area in front of Cisterna is held by a thin line of scattered outposts. First and third battalions will jump off at zero one hundred hours. And that's about it. This is strange. It's alien. And it won't give us what we would like to have. Well, good morning and welcome to Dave Does History on Bill Mick Live. Bill, not here today. He's in West by God, Virginia for his mother's funeral this morning. Certainly our thoughts are with him and we share the sentiment. May her memory be a blessing. By September of 1943, the Allies had forced the Germans, the Nazis, the the Axis powers, out of North Africa and out of Sicily. In Italy, there was um, something of a revolt, and Benito Mussolini was thrown out of office, sent into exile, or sort of, I guess, is, is the way to, to look at that. But we don't have time to get into all that today. But the new Italian government had reached an armistice with the Allies, and essentially... Italy had surrendered and left the war. This left Germany in a very uh, dangerous strategic position. Basically, it left their belly, as as Winston Churchill called it, uh, uncovered and unarmored. Germany immediately sent troops in to occupy all of Italy and found themselves really dealing more with the Italian troops at first, trying to disarm them and get them out of the way since they weren't going to help. On the 3rd of September in 1943, the Allied troops landed at Salerno in Italy, and they had landed not expecting a great deal of resistance from the Germans. They had believed that the Germans would withdraw because their intelligence told them that Hitler had been convinced that southern Italy was unimportant and should just be abandoned. This should have been the first clue. It wasn't, but it should have been. The intelligence in Italy was horribly wrong most of the time. This is, uh, this is actually a plot point, a minor plot point in the book Catch-22. If you've ever read that, the intelligence continues to be wrong um, in, in some humorous ways in the book. And in fact, uh, some of the pilots start messing with the intelligence. But over and over again, the intelligence failures in Italy during the Italian campaign of 1943, 44, and 45 were legendary in some ways. They, it turned out that Hitler uh, had never thought that southern Italy was unimportant strategically. We're talking about the same guy here that defended Stalingrad and the eastern... Uh, portions of of Poland and uh, the the Baltic states to the death, but somehow or another the Allies convinced themselves that in 1943 that he believed that Italy was unimportant, southern Italy unimportant strategically, and it was okay to go ahead and let the Allies land. That, as I said, turned out to be utterly 
and completely wrong. The drive to Rome, the drive up the Italian peninsula, would be a very long and very bloody struggle. The Allies would suffer over a 100,000 killed in action during this campaign. And it all comes about because Kesselring, General Kesselring, convinces Hitler that, no, we should, we should fight for every inch, make it cost, make it, make it hard for them to, to push up the coast. And, of course, this is what happened. The whole invasion of Italy, by the way, was quite the argument amongst the Allies. This was Winston Churchill's soft underbelly idea. He believed that Germany, Nazi Germany, was vulnerable from the south. Uh, He wanted to use the Navy, the Royal Navy, the American Navy, and push up that peninsula. He really wanted to go up through Greece initially, but that didn't work out. But um, he really bought into this soft underbelly theory, which in practicality could have worked quite well, but they forgot about some things, intelligence, you know, failures for one. They weren't as familiar with the terrain as they should have been. Italy, the peninsula of Italy, is easily defensible. I mean, it's it's very compact, you know, it's not very wide. It's very mountainous. And it created a situation where the Allied troops sent to do this were facing crack German troops. I mean, they were not facing, you know, Wehrmacht troops that were reservists called up at the last second. They were facing the Hermann Goering Division, Panzer Divisions. Uh, The Germans sent the best that they had, for the most part, to the Italian campaign, at least initially. There were some discussions about uh, the United States didn't really want to do this. Uh, We wanted to invade France and get pushing that way as quickly as possible. There were even politically, now this this is something that might surprise you, There were a lot of Latin American allies, countries in Latin America, that really pushed the allies to invade Spain. Now, Spain was not in the war. Spain was neutral, technically, but it was also ruled by a a, a fellow dictator, a fellow, for all practical purposes, Nazi. They, uh, (laughs) the Spanish, were not allied with the Germans, but they certainly had the same strategic ideologies. They certainly had the same uh, thought processes. And there were many people who believed throughout the course of the war that Spain at some point would join. And of course, if they had, it could have been strategically uh, devastating, particularly to the British if Gibraltar had fallen. But it's intriguing that these Latin American countries, countries that are descended from Spain, as it were, who are pushing the Allies to invade Spain instead of Italy or or France. You got to think that there's some, um, what's the word for it, revenge factor in there. You, you got to feel like some of these Latin American countries aren't thinking as much strategically as they were thinking about, you know, let's get even with Spain for what they quote-unquote, did to us hundreds of years ago. And so they really pushed the Allies to do that. That, of course, was not laughed out of existence, but it was pretty much pushed out of existence because, really, number one, Spain was not at war with us, and number two, 
why would you invade a country that A, isn't at war with you, and B, you're going to end up essentially in the same strategic position. Okay, you conquer Spain, but then you've got to cross the Pyrenees. And there aren't a lot of passes through there. You, strategically, it didn't make a lot of sense, but it was intriguing that the Latin American allies really pushed for that. The Germans saw Italy as a make-or-break fight. And it's a campaign that doesn't get, it should get more attention than it does in the big scheme of things. It doesn't, unfortunately. But on January 22nd, the Allies had had enough of this slow slog up the Italian peninsula. The Germans had dug in along several defensive lines, one of which was known as the Gustav Line, south of Rome, and anchored on the west side of the Italian peninsula near a town called Anzio. The Allies decided that the only way to to get around this line is to flank it. We're gonna have to we're gonna have to land troops behind them and, and kind of push outside. We can't get quite behind them, but we've got a nice nice beach at Anzio, we'll land there and we'll we'll push into their we'll force their line to pull back, at least on the west side, and that will allow us to proceed up the road to, to Rome. Well, on January twenty second the landing at Anzio takes place. This, as I said, is an attempt to flank the Gustav Line. Troops are landed. The general in charge has his orders, which are to push inland to get behind the German line and to force them to pull back. And in yet another strategic failure, the general in charge of the landings at Anzio decides that, eh, I'm not ready to push forward. He becomes very... Montgomery-esque, Montgomery-esque, and he decides he needs to build up his strength. He needs to build up his troops. He doesn't have enough at this point. Very uh, McClellan-esque from the Civil War. Needs more. I need more. And so he just sort of sits there. He doesn't do anything. And this this gets people mad. Uh, no less than Winston Churchill is screeching about it. you got to keep moving. And so... With pressure building and the line not falling and and Americans being killed by the German troops, the crack German troops, pressure is put on the general, pressure is put on the rangers uh, in, in the area to break this line. And so on January 30th, an operation is launched, which will involve a couple of ranger battalions. And they will push on to the city of Cistern, which you may have heard of. It's actually in the New Testament, for those of you that are of the Christian faith. And the troops at Cist- the, the, these ranger troops will push into this small town of Cistern, where they will, according to intelligence, face very light resistance. They will break the German line, and everything will be great. And the plan seems so infallible, and the intelligence so so certain that even Colonel Darby of Darby's Rangers signs off on it and says, okay, let's go get Cistern. Let's get this thing moving. Let's start pushing hard out of Anzio and on to Rome. So late on the evening of January 30th, the Rangers head out 
And at 1 o'clock in the morning on January 31st, they reached their first objective. And by dawn on January 31st, it seems that they are going to succeed. But things aren't going to go quite as planned. Hey, this is Whitey. And this is Hank. And you can listen to our podcast, Two Pine Talk, on all your favorite podcast sources. So come check it out where we talk about two beers and and everything stuff. (laughs) Listen to Two Pine Talk on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we left you, the Rangers were pushing forward. They had crossed through some culverts and some some creek beds and they were headed towards the town of Cistern as I told you. By dawn these rangers who are crack troops, you got to understand this, the, the United States Rangers are every bit as good as any troops you can name. They're, they are trained to operate independently. In fact there's less than a thousand of these rangers that are pushing forward towards Cistern. They have a great deal of special training, and they have a great deal of elan and esprit du corps. They are very well organized, very well trained, and they are very strong troops, normally. The problem that they will discover later on, they don't know this right now. At 4.30 in the morning on January 31st, they don't realize this yet, which is that the, the army has been misusing ranger troops during the uh, first few months of the Italian campaign. Rather than using them as shock troops or special operations forces, they've been using them as regular infantry, which they are definitely not. And in the process of this use as, as regular infantry, they've been chewed up badly. And in fact, on the morning of January 31st, For these 767 rangers that are pushing forward, almost half of them are recent replacements. They are not fully trained in ranger operations. They are not familiar with how rangers act and behave. They haven't had time to become really rangers yet. They they just haven't been. But, you know, it's, it's the United States Army. Well, it says ranger, so you must be one. This is, like I said, one of the first mistakes that will be made on this day. And this day, folks, you know, a lot of times we talk about history and we like to hear the stories that are great. We like to hear about George Washington and we like to hear about U.S. Grant. and We like to hear about the soldiers who did very brave things. And on this day, some of these rangers are going to do very brave, incredible things. But overall, this is going to be a disaster. This is going to be a tragic disaster. Of these 767 rangers that are pushing across this open field that they have finally reached at 4.30 in the morning, only six are going to return to the American lines. The rest are going to be killed or captured. And it's going to become one of the most iconic tragedies in the history of the United States Army. But even in all of that, there will be I don't want to I don't want to disappoint you. I'm trying to trying to give you some 
some silver lining, some sunshine, some light at the end of the tunnel, there will be a positive that will come out of this. As they reach this field, there's about a, there's a triangular shaped field in front of the city, Cisterna. It's not a city, it's a town, it's a village, whatever you want to call it. The Rangers have bypassed German artillery positions and German scouts. They've reached this field. All they have to do is cross this field, get into Cisterna, and they will capture the town. They will capture their objective. What they don't know is, of course, sitting in the the village and sitting on all three sides of the field is the Hermann Goering Division with their Panzerkampfwagen 4s and the 715th Regiment, Fallschirmjägers, paratroopers, very cracked troops. As they march, as they move across that field in the early morning dawn, just as the sun is starting to rise and the, the fog, you know, the mist is rising, and it doesn't take long before these rangers, 767 of them, realize that they are completely surrounded and cut off. This is already going badly. Their commander, Radios Darby, says, we've got a huge problem here. We are, we are totally surrounded. What do you want us to do? Well, you're going to have to fight your way out because we don't have anything to come get you. And so the Rangers, left to their own devices, begin to fight the Germans as best they can. There are stories that will come out of this that are utterly amazing. Growing up in Ogden, Utah, we played a lot of Avalon Hill war games. You may or may not be familiar with us. But they were games. They weren't real life. And so we would do things in these games that we thought were, you know, incredible, you know, amazing accomplishments. But we just, in the back of our minds, you just kind of said, well, that couldn't really happen. But there are at least three incidents, recorded incidents on this day, of rangers climbing up on top of German tanks, throwing grenades down the hatches. Apparently the hatches don't lock on tanks. I didn't know that. But they open up the hatch, they throw the grenade in, kill the tank crew. And in two of these cases, they capture the tanks. In other words, the rangers, who are light infantry troops, capture two giant Nazi tanks. And they're going to put them to use. They're going to take these tanks and they are going to turn around and start shooting back at the Germans with them. But the problem is, things are so disorganized that the the rest of the rangers don't realize that the two tanks have been captured. And, of course, they have bazookas and they have anti-tank weapons. And so all they see are these tanks moving towards them. They assume that they're German and they actually knock out the tanks. One of the tanks is captured by the commander of the Rangers. He jumps up on top, opens a hatch, drops a grenade down, blows it up. And, again, he's standing on the tanks and his own men, on the tanks, sorry, and his own men think that he's a German, so they start shooting at him. Of course, he jumps down and he's like, wait, what are you doing? Three tanks at least captured this day by the Rangers, all three essentially destroyed by the Rangers because they didn't know that they had been captured. 
in the meantime, the German forces are slowly pushing in on these on these 767 rangers, some of whom have begun to fall. And it's important to remember that at least half of these men are not really full rangers. They're replacements who have been sort of trained, but not completely trained. And this is important because they don't have the elan. They don't have that special the je ne sais quoi that ranger troops have. And by noon, many of them have been captured by the Germans, probably about 80 of them. And the Germans are getting tired of these rangers who won't surrender. They're getting tired of these you know, 767 guys in a small field holding off two freaking divisions of German troops. And they come up with a plan to put an end to this. Shortly after noon, the paratroopers, the enemy para, the, the Nazi paratroopers, the 715th, uh, get an armored personnel carrier and they put a dozen captured rangers in the center of the uh, of the field, right in front of their armored personnel carriers, and they yell through the bullhorns and stuff, "Surrender or we'll shoot them." And the ranger response to this is, "They shoot two of the German guards." Well. The Germans retaliate. They bayonet some of the prisoners, two of the prisoners as well, and they continue to march the rest of them forward. The same sequence is repeated. Germans yell, you need to surrender. The Rangers shoot two of the German guards. Two more prisoners are bayoneted. But this time, some of those Rangers that are not quite up to snuff begin to surrender. The the Germans continue to march their captives. Now, close to 100, towards the center of the rangers' position, shouting they're going to shoot the prisoners if the remaining rangers don't surrender. For the third time, the surrounded Americans open fire. This time, though, they accidentally hit some of the prisoners, along with one or two of the Germans. Some of the men who are new to the combat situation begin to get hysterical, they start to leave their positions and surrender. Ranger commander orders them not to surrender, but they continue to do so. And from the official United States Army report, the piecemeal surrender continued. Quote, even an attempt by the more determined rangers to stop those who wish to surrender by shooting them failed, unquote. In other words, American troops began to shoot at American troops who were surrendering to try to convince them not to surrender. The rest of the Ranger troops who were calmer, I guess, started destroying their weapons, burying them, scattering parts, whatever, destroying radios after telling Darby what was happening. The last man to speak to him said, look, our CO's been injured, executive officer killed, I only have five men left, German tanks are coming. So long, Colonel, he said. Maybe when it's all over, I'll see you again. Colonel Darby, Darby's Rangers, told the man that he would never forget the surrounded man and he would be with him till the end. The radio was then destroyed. They kept fighting on for a little bit longer. And with the few men they had left, they began to surrender. More than 700 U.S. troops 
were taken captive that day. And as I said earlier, only six men of the 767 who set out the night before to take Cisterna would return to the United States lines. Below in the show notes, you'll find a link to the story of PFC Joseph Palmer, who was one of those men who made it out of there. He doesn't, to this to his dying day, he didn't know how he got out of there. He has no idea. He just knows that he woke up walking alongside the road. The last thing he remembered being told to surrender. It is a very, very dark moment. Not just in the Italian campaign, but in the history of the United States Army. 767 men set out that morning. Six came back. I'm Bill Mick with WMMB Radio in Melbourne, Florida, where we have a governor that will actually stand for what's right. My show airs mornings from 6 to 9 Eastern. Every day we discuss news, politics, and social issues that impact us all. Tuesdays in our 8 o'clock hour, Dave joins me for something we call Dave Does History, where Dave brings us events from our past that contain lessons for right now. To listen live, find WMMB on the iHeartRadio app. Hi, this is Justine, bringing you late-night talk for those that go to bed early. Listen to my podcast, What's Justine Thinking, every Wednesday and Friday on Anchor and Spotify. By late afternoon of January 31st, 1944, it was clear that the battle at Cisterna had been lost. There was no further contact with the Rangers who had attacked Cisterna. And there was a great deal of consternation in the American command structure, with Colonel Darby desperate to rescue his his men. A little bit later that day, they would attempt to launch a relief column to reach Cisterna and reach the captured men. While the line was pushed forward three miles, this 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 counterattack, this rescue attempt, actually works better than the original attack, which it should have, because instead of sending 767 men, they actually send thousands, and they push the line forward three miles. And in essence, they accomplish the mission that they set out to do with one exception. The Germans still hold this little town of Cisterna, which is, of course, a huge road junction, and is needed for supplies and likes of that. So they kind of succeed in the mission. They don't capture Cisterna, which will actually remain in German hands for another six months, five months anyway. And what we will learn later on, after the war is over, is that there is a silver lining to this whole thing, this whole fiasco, this whole attack by the Rangers, which fails and ends up with over 700 killed or captured. The Germans had actually been planning to make a counterattack on that side of the, the line with the Hermann Goering Division and the 715th. One with any kind of military training has to think that that counteroffensive probably had a pretty above average decent chance of succeeding. In other words, had they broken through to the beaches of Anzio, they could have destroyed the American beachhead there and really set the Americans and the Allies back significantly. What we learn later on, at the, after the end of the war, in interrogations and 
analysis and that sort of thing is that the Germans were kind of put off by this. They, this less than a thousand Rangers who, for all practical purposes, fought quite brilliantly, although in a completely untenable position, had essentially convinced the Germans that eh, maybe we shouldn't counterattack. Maybe we just need to stay on the defensive. Maybe if we stay on the defensive, we can continue to cost them more. If, if we take the offensive, and again, it's modern warfare, offensives cost lives. So maybe we should hold back and not attack. And it's this little attack by these 767 Rangers that actually spoils the German counteroffensive at Anzio. How many lives were saved by that, do you think? The Ranger forces in Italy, the rest of the Ranger forces, are basically just shattered. And the United States Army comes to the conclusion that the Rangers here in the Italian campaign are not going to be helpful. We, we can't continue to use them the way that we have used them in the past. And so they actually disband all of the Ranger units in Italy. Not everywhere else. The Rangers everywhere else, as we're going to learn in June of 1944, are quite, quite prepared and quite well trained. But in Italy, the Ranger forces are disbanded. And Colonel Darby, of Darby's Rangers, you may have seen the movie, uh, is sent back to the United States. He will be promoted to full colonel, and eventually he will return to Italy as kind of an observer. And it's there while he's performing his Pentagon duties that the general in charge of the division that he's watching is, is killed, and he assumes command. And he will be killed in action on April 30th, 1945, literally two days before the Germans surrender in Italy. leaving the legacy behind of the Ranger forces. The battle at Anzio and this small little action at Cisterna, which most people don't know about, most people have no clue that this, this happened, is a remarkable story for a lot of reasons. One, it, it really echoes of the, the landings at Gallipoli in 1915 that Winston Churchill had really pushed for and turned into an utter disaster. The landings at Anzio strategically probably were not all that necessary. But the men who landed there weren't given that opportunity to weigh in on that. They were told, go, and they went. And for many years after that, you could sense a certain pride in United States soldiers who had served bravely and well at Anzio. As I told you, I spent much of my teenage years, my, my last two years in high school, playing Avalon Hill War Games and became very familiar with some of this history. I, this is where I learned a lot of my World War II history, and it was, was fascinating to me. But we played at one of my best friend's houses often, and... His father used to sit at the the kitchen, used to sit at the, this was, you know, 1970s-ish house. And it, so it had the bar, you know, kind of thing with the cabinets above it and the, the bar stools. And it's where his dad would sit. And 
he always seemed very, to me, kind of standoffish. He was a nice guy, don't get me wrong. He was a very sweet guy, very, very pleasant, but he didn't like to talk about things, and he certainly didn't want to talk about his service in the war. And every time he would refer somehow or another to the Germans, the World War II and the Germans, you know, because we were interested in this. He had been there. We wanted to know. And the only thing he would ever tell us is that he hated those Nazi some bitches. He hated them. Still hated them. All these years later, still hated them Nazi some bitches. And I can still hear his voice in my head saying that. Those Nazi some bitches. It wasn't until later that I would learn that he had been at Anzio. I don't know what he did. I don't know what unit he was with. I, I have no idea, but I know he was there. I found out that he had been on those beaches at Anzio and involved in those fights. And that fight in particular was so vicious that even 40, 45 years later, they were still those Nazi some bitches. Our history is all around us. Everywhere we look, we run into history. But our World War II veterans are passing so fast that we are in danger of losing these first-person accounts of these things that happened, like the Battle of Cisterna. I read the other day that there's something like 167,000 World War II veterans left in the United States. That's not very many. You realize that? Not very many at all. I think... Is it the Rose Bowl in Pasadena has a capacity of 110,000, something like that? So basically, a football game and a half, depending on where you're playing. Or maybe two football games if you're talking about a standard NFL-style stadium. That's what we have left. And not all of those men and women did everything. They weren't all, you know, at Anzio. They weren't all at D-Day. They weren't all at Midway. I get that. But... We're losing them very, very quickly. And pretty soon, it's all going to be gone. And we won't have necessarily that feeling that you can get when you look into somebody's eyes like Joseph Palmer before he passed and hear those words about what happened those days. You won't get to hear the anger that's still there about the intelligence failures that left these men hanging out there in front of two full German divisions and the courage with which they fought and stood their ground for hours, basically stopping two German divisions from moving. I wish that I could go back in time and have those conversations. I, You know, people say, what would you do if you had a DeLorean? Well, believe me, I'd be writing down stories. I'd be recording stories. I'd be talking to people. I'd be getting these ideas because battles like this one, the Battle of Cisterna, are going to be forgotten, folks. I mean, I know that they're, I know that they are the source of studies in the USR. You can look up the United States Army War College has a quite the, quite the breakdown of this battle. But other than the officers who go there, who's going to read it? You, me. I mean, I read part of it. I didn't read the whole thing because it's very long and involved. All of this history is going away fast. It's fading fast. And pretty soon it'll just be words on a page in a book that sits on a shelf in a library almost no one goes to. 
I can still hear my friend's dad saying those words. I can still hear it as clear as day. And I wish that I had asked him, okay, tell me why. Tell me what you learned. How did it change you as a person? What did you do that made you the man that you are today? Because he was a very nice man. Very, very loving. The Battle of Cisterna this day, 1944, resulted in the loss of 700 Americans killed or captured. But it stopped a German counterattack. And maybe, maybe no one expected that, no one planned for that. But that sacrifice of those men that day must never, ever be forgotten. Nor should we forget any of the sacrifices made by all of that generation. Take the time right now. Tell the people that matter in your life you love them very much. You'd miss them if they weren't there. So don't pass up those opportunities. You don't want to have that regret. Plausibly Live, I'm Dave Bowman. This has been Dave Does History for Bill Mick Live on WMMB. And we will see you tomorrow for a new episode of Plausibly Live. <laughs>